It's unrelated things. Greetings and welcome to episode number 10 of Unrelating Unrelated Things. This is the real episode number 10. It's not episode number 9, which I mistakenly identify as episode number 10 in the intro and the outro. So if you did listen to the last episode, you will likely have caught that. I did uh, call that episode number 10 when it in fact was episode number 9. So here comes the actual episode number 10. Thank you to all the first-time listeners for tuning in, and thanks to repeat listeners for coming back for more unrelated things. If you like what you hear on this episode, you can make a donation or find out more about unrelated things at unrelatedthings.net. You can provide feedback at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. And you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. So I've gone through a big change since I recorded the last episode. I have relocated for my job. I am still working for the same company, but I've shifted gears and moved into a different role with that company. And that change has necessitated my move, which is why there was a big gap between my recording episode number nine and recording episode number 10. I relocated from Vermont to the state of New Jersey. I'm still getting acclimated to the area and to my new job. There is a lot for me to do to shift gears and to learn in my new role. I have been with the same company for close to 14 years, but I was in one particular role previous um, in retail, you know, customer facing, managing stores. Now moving into the corporate office and managing one of the systems that is run in all those stores. So big, big change for me, lots for me to learn in my new role. But enough about me and shifting gears and and delaying my uh, regularly scheduled podcast recording. And on to the real, the actual episode number 10 of Unrelated Things. On to the jubilation and justification. So my top pick for episode number 10 is the app Waze. Waze is a turn-by-turn navigation app. Uh, It's a company that has been, you know, on the uh, iPhone and on the Android phone systems for a while. Recently, this company was bought by Google, and I expect that the outstanding functionality of Waze will be uh, interlaced in with the Google Maps and Google navigation. Why is Waze great? Waze is more than just turn-by-turn navigation. In a lot of ways, it is um, crowdsourced. There's data that you can actually put into Waze to kind of leave a message, so to speak, for drivers that follow behind you. This is, the, I think, the key functionality of Waze. I think this is functionality that every mapping um, software, every turn-by-turn, every navigation software should include options for this. Um, you can, if there's a, a hazard on the roadway, a car stopped on the side of the road, you can actually post that as a kind of a message and drivers driving along behind you will get that message popped up when they're using Waze as well. So Waze is really, really great to alert you before you approach police, accidents, road hazards, traffic jams, um, anything that's going on on the road that you can uh, can report through the Waze app. Um, so it's really, really great functionality as far as that goes. Uh, I even though now I finally found my way to work and back home at my new job, um, I still uh, run ways as I am traveling back and forth. So I have a pretty good commute now. My previous commute was about oh two minutes, and my current commute is more like thirty-five minutes. So Waze is very helpful to alert me to what's going on on the road up ahead 
what I might run into. Uh, so it is my pick of the week. Roll up your trousers. It's time to wade into the news. So on to the shallow end of the news and some of the stories that I have been collecting since my last episode. So these stories have been uh, kind of percolating for, you know, over the last couple of months since I made the last recording. In Dorset, Minnesota, Robert Tufts hasn't made it to preschool yet, but he's already been elected twice as mayor of Dorset, Minnesota. Uh, Mayor Tufts' name was picked Sunday during the annual Taste of Dorset Festival to be mayor of Dorset for a second term. Dorset is very, very small. It has no formal city government, and it has a population of 22 to 28, depending on whether the minister and his family are in town. Anyone could vote as many times as they liked for $1 per vote at any of the ballot boxes in the stores around town. The proceeds from voting go towards organizing the festival. Bobby was only three when he won election last year. His mother, Emma Tuff, said she and her son, who turns five in October, got choked up when his name was pulled for re-election Sunday. The mayor picked a random man out of the crowd to pick the new name out of a clear tub, and the man was blindfolded twice. While all this was happening, Bobby told the crowd how to musky fish, she said. So for the second term in a row, at the age of four years old, Mr. Bobby Tufts has been re-elected the mayor of Dorset, Minnesota. This happened. Talk about highway robbery in Russia. There's a man that's facing up to two years in prison for stealing an entire road. The man, a 40-year-old resident of Siktvikar, the capital of the Komi Republic in the Northwestern Federal District, admitted having stolen 82 reinforced concrete slabs that made up the roughly one-mile road linking the village of Parcheg with the Vicheja River, the Russian news agency Ria Novosti reported. Police uncovered the highway robbery when they pulled over a convoy of three heavy trucks carrying the slabs, which they said had been removed with a manipulator, an industrial machine that combines a bulldozer and a forklift. The interior minister valued the slabs at 200,000 rubles, or about $6,095. And another thing. The organization One Million Moms is disgusted by Kraft's new salad dressing print ad. The moms write on their website, Last week's issue of People magazine had the most disgusting ad on the inside front cover that we have ever seen Kraft produce. A full two-page ad features a naked man lying on a picnic blanket with only a small portion of the blanket barely covering his genitals. It is easy to see what the ad is really selling. The moms are urging fellow anti-picnic nappers to boycott Kraft. Quote, Christians will not be able to buy Kraft dressings or any of their products until they clean up their advertising. Sometimes stuff happens. And sometimes weird stuff happens. From the Huffington Post, uh, last Friday, a man dressed as a giant penis was set upon by an offended gent as a woman dressed as a huge vagina tried to calm the testy situation. Chris Murray, Mr. Penis, and Joanne Tramarco, Ms. Vagina, were performing on the street to promote the delightfully named Women Who Wank in the Penis Monologues when a passerby took offense to their costumes. Murray said, He started shouting at me, saying it was disgusting and children could see us. I could tell by his body language that he was really angry. I tried to calm him down. I wasn't looking for a fight, but he grabbed my hat, tore it off, 
and chucked it on the pavement. The police were called, who asked Tremarco to climb out of the giant vagina costume, or she could be arrested for a public order offense. They agreed to stop the performance and not to press charges against the angry man. I tend to shy away from weird and odd stories that involve serious injury and death. They are just not my cup of tea to uh, present to all of you. But this particular story kind of struck me. Uh, this is from the Daily Record UK, dailyrecord.co.uk, and is a story written by Donna Watso. The remains of a woman have been found sitting in front of her TV 42 years after she was reported missing. Hedviga Golik, who was born in 1924, had apparently made herself a cup of tea before sitting in her favorite armchair in front of her black and white television. Croatian police said she was last seen by neighbors in 1966, when she would have been 42 years old. Her neighbors thought she had moved out of her flat in the capital Zagreb, but she was found by police and bailiffs who had broken in to help authorities establish who owned the flat. A police spokesman said, so far, we have no idea how it is possible that someone officially reported missing so long ago was not found before in the same apartment she used to live in. When officers went there, they said, it was like stepping in to a place frozen in time. The cup she had been drinking tea from was still on a table next to the chair she had been sitting in, and the house was full of things no one had seen for decades. Nothing had been disturbed for decades. Neighbors were shocked by the discovery. Jadranka Markic was nine when Hedviga vanished. She said, I still remember her. She was a quiet woman who kept to herself, but was polite. We all thought that she had just moved out and gone to live with relatives. Hold on tight, we're headed for the deep end. That last story was a lot closer to the deep end for me than the shallow end. But on to some more stories in the news. Um, the FBI deemed agents faultless in 150 shootings. This is from a story that was in the New York Times by Charlie Savage and Michael S. Schmidt. After contradictory stories emerged about an FBI agent's killing last month of a Chechen man in Orlando, Florida, which I spoke about on a previous uh, podcast, who was being questioned over ties to the Boston Marathon bombing suspects, the Bureau reassured the public that it would clear up the murky episode. Quote, the FBI takes very seriously any shooting incidents involving our agents, and as such, we have an effective, time-tested process for addressing them internally, a bureau spokesman said. But if such an internal investigations are time-tested, their outcomes are also predictable. From 1993 to early 2011, FBI agents fatally shot about 70 subjects, in quotes, and wounded about 80 others. And every one of those episodes was deemed justified according to interviews and internal FBI records obtained by the New York Times through a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. The last two years have followed the same pattern. An FBI spokesman said that since 2011, there had been no findings of improper intentional shootings. In most of the shootings, the FBI's internal investigation was the only official inquiry. In the Orlando case, for example, there have been conflicting accounts about basic facts, like whether the Chechen man, Ibrahim Todeshev, attacked an agent with a knife, was unarmed, or was brandishing a metal pole. But Orlando homicide detectives are not independently investigating what happened. We had nothing to do with it, said Sergeant Jim Young, an Orlando police spokesman. It is a federal matter, and we're deferring everything to the FBI. 
well, then it is uh, not a surprise with the track record of the FBI's investigations that uh, the same result of justification um, will be come to. Let's get deeper into the conversation. More FBI news. The FBI has used drones for surveillance in limited cases over U.S. soil. FBI Director Robert Mueller has told a U.S. Senate subcommittee. Mr. Mueller said the agency had, quote, very few drones and had used them in, quote, a very minimal way and, quote, very seldom. But the director said the FBI was in the initial stages of developing drone policies. In May, U.S. President Barack Obama said he would curtail the use of armed drones in operations outside the United States. Under the new policy described by the White House, the U.S. will allow only drones to be used in areas that are not over war zones when there was a continuing imminent threat to the U.S. and capture was not feasible. Mueller said drones were used in particular incidents where you need the capability. A surveillance drone was used during a February standoff with an Alabama man who shot dead a school bus driver and then took a five-year-old boy hostage, according to media reports at the time. I'm not completely against the use of drones in certain circumstances when there is an active hostage situation, when there, when there is an active uh, scene, crime scene, or a crime in progress. Um, it is, I think, very reasonable to use the tools at your disposal to get the best information possible. Um, but I think that there's a risk if we're not fully aware of when and how and why drones might be used in the U.S. There is a big risk of them being used for less than less than ideal purposes, purposes aside from those directly uh, directly impacting the imminent safety. Um, of the citizens of the U.S. Are you kidding me? This, that's what I thought when I heard uh, this particular story. Are you kidding me? The, um, let's see, it is the San Diego's attorney's office um, brought a man to trial for drawing with chalk on the sidewalk. This is from Consumers.com by Chris Moran. Last week, a San Diego man made headlines when he went on trial to face 13 counts of vandalism related to chalk drawings he made on sidewalks outside of Bank of America branches in the area. On Monday afternoon, the jury returned after only a few hours of deliberation with a not guilty verdict on each count. After the verdict were read, the San Diego attorney's office criticized the defendant, saying it had offered him options that would have allowed everyone to avoid trial. One such offer required the defendant to perform 32 hours of community service, attend an eight-hour seminar by the Corrective Behavior Institute, pay Bank of America $6,299, and surrender his driver's license for a three-year period. Shortly before the trial began, city attorney Jan Goldsmith tried to sweeten the deal, allowing him to plead guilty to one vandalism charge, serve three years probation, pay an undetermined amount of restitution, spend 24 hours cleaning up graffiti, and surrender his driver's license for two years. I didn't see how that was fair, the acquitted chalker told the San Diego Reader. Why should I have to give up my license for two years and serve three years probation probation, just for exercising my First Amendment rights? And thankfully, in that case, the jury agreed with those sentiments. 
One more thing. One more thing in the deep end of the news. Uh, this is from the bbc.co.uk, story by Robert Pesto. Senior bankers guilty of reckless misconduct should be jailed, a long-awaited report on banking commissioned by the government has recommended. The Cross-Party Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards' fifth report said bankers should, in future, be accountable for their actions. Imagine that Bankers being accountable for their actions. Of course, it's only a suggestion made by a commission on banking standards. It also said that some bonuses should be withheld for up to 10 years. The report said, quote, too many bankers, especially at the most senior levels, have operated in an environment with insufficient personal responsibility. Senior executives were aware that they would not be punished for what they could not see and promptly donned the blindfolds. The report advocated senior bankers should be assigned clear personal responsibilities with the legal onus on them to show that they have done all that is reasonably required. Reckless dis recklessly disregarding these responsibilities should be made a criminal offense, including a possible prison sentence. Senior bankers should adhere to a new set of banking standards set by regulators. Bonus paper bankers should be deferred for up to 10 years and canceled if a banker misbehaves. And banks should be legally required to put financial safety ahead of shareholder interests. So a cross-party parliamentary commission has come up with some very good and very strong suggestions for the banking industry in that country. So what's going on here at home? A story from Mother Jones has uh, pointed out some leg legislation that has been introduced in um, the U.S. Senate and Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, who I've spoken about previously, and a bipartisan group of senators introduced a bill Thursday that would break up the nation's biggest banks, forcing them to split their routine commercial banking op operations from their risky trading activities. As a bit of history, the story uh, explains the 1933 Glass-Steagall Act, which Congress passed in response to the 1929 financial crash, separated traditional commercial banks, which hold Americans' checking and savings accounts and are backed by taxpayer money, from investment banks, which make riskier bets. But in 1999, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which was backed by the Clinton administration, gutted the Glass-Steagall Act. A bonanza of bank mergers ensued, and the size of these new behemoths, such as Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Bank of America, made their downfalls more threatening to the overall U.S. economy. Their too-big-to-fail size justified the government bailouts they received during the last financial crisis. The senators behind this new bill, a group that includes John McCain, Republican of Arizona, Maria Cantwell, Democrat of Washington, and Angus King, independent of Maine, referred to their legislation as the 21st century Glass-Steagall Act because it would reinstate a firewall between normal banking functions and casino-like finance. By cutting the big banks down to size, the bill would reduce the potential impact of a bank's failure on the wider economy and decrease the size of future bailouts. This bill, if passed and enacted into law, would not fully remove the threat of the too-big-to-fail, None of the institutions that failed in 2008, such as Lehman Brothers and American International Group, were commercial banks. Quote, but it would rebuild the wall between commercial and investment banking that was in place for over 60 years, McCain said, restore confidence in the system, and reduce risk for the American taxpayer. And that's just yeah. the way it is. And that is just the way it is. So on to another topic, shifting gears, and let's talk a little bit about movies. I'm going to talk about an older movie, but a movie that I just watched yesterday. Uh, it is called The Perks of Being a Wallflower. And 
going into this movie, I thought, okay, high school, teen, coming of age uh, kind of movie. But this one actually really grabbed me and hit me pretty hard, uh, very unexpectedly. I didn't really know the storyline going in. Um, I had heard great uh, reviews of it, but not reviews in depth where the, where the storyline was outlined or anything was spoiled for me. So I really, really enjoyed going in kind of blind. I think it had a bigger impact for me in that sense. So if you haven't seen it and you don't want to uh, hear about it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk in ways that try not to spoil anything while still giving an outline of, of the movie. Um, but if you really don't want to hear anything about the movie because you're planning on seeing the perks of being a wallflower, skip ahead a little bit <clears throat> and pass by this section. So The Perks of Being a Wallflower is based on a novel written by Stephen Chbosky. Um, he also wrote the screenplay for the movie. Um, the movie stars uh, Logan Lerman as Charlie, who is the main character in the movie. It stars Emma Watson as Sam and Ezra Miller as her stepbrother, Patrick. One of the first things that hit me a little bit oddly was the relationship between the character Sam and her stepbrother, Patrick. It was an extremely close relationship. They were clearly uh, depicted as best friends um, within this movie, which I think is unusual given the situation in which they were stepbrother, stepsister. Both Sam and Patrick are seniors in high school when Charlie comes into high school as a freshman. And a little bit of the storyline is explained on an I, IBDP, is that what it's called? Uh, a post. Um, IMDB, that's, that's what it's called. I don't know where why I threw that uh, B in there. IMDB, the movie database online. So here's a, a little bit of the explanation of the story of the movie. Charlie is a shy teenager without friends that has just joined the high school. He misses his best friend who had committed suicide, and he writes letters to an imaginary friend telling his feelings. Further, Charlie has a mental illness problem in his past. Soon, Charlie befriends the veteran's Patrick, who is gay, and his stepsister, Sam, and they become best friends. Charlie wants to be a writer, and he also becomes a favorite student of his teacher of literature, Mr. Anderson, who lends him books. Sam and Patrick introduce Charlie to their friends, and Charlie falls in love with Sam, but doesn't have the self-confidence to date her. So there's a little bit of the storyline, kind of a little... More or less a basic coming of age aspects to this movie, but this movie really struck me. the The character Charlie, I really connected with on a level that I didn't expect. Um, the way he was portrayed in this movie really connected with a lot of the feelings that I have about my high school experience. I certainly have none of the history that this uh, character, Charlie, has that that lead him to some strange and um, dark places uh, in his life. But uh, it, it's a movie that is probably going to be on my top 10 movies list, but it's a movie that I definitely need to revisit. I need to re-watch this movie, you know, an another couple times um, before I think I really get the full experience from it. But I highly, highly recommend The Perks of Being a Wallflower. It is a coming-of-age story, but with uh, a lot of unexpected elements that aren't your everyday um, story and just really felt connected with these particular characters. All right, cool. All right, cool. Let's move on to a little bit of 
music. So I didn't know what to choose for the music aspect of this episode. So I just picked up my iPhone, went into my music, and pressed shuffle. And when I did so, I heard bright eyes when the president talks to God. When the President Talks to God is a protest song by Bright Eyes with a very pointed political message directed towards George to W. George w. Bush and his policies. It was originally released as a free download on iTunes in 2005. Because TV is so good. One of the best lines from this song is, when the president talks to God, I wonder which one plays the better cop. We should find some jobs. The ghetto's broke. No, they're lazy, George. I say we don't. Just give them more liquor stores and dirty coke. That's what God recommends. So, interesting take on the link between religion and politics when the president uh, is talking to God daily and it kind of amusing on what does the president say to God when the president talks to God and how does God answer? And here's the uh, intro that I accidentally bumped. Now, played at the correct time um, at the beginning of my last piece. Because TV is so good. It's a TV thing. It is a TV thing. So I am catching up on the TV show Haven. And I am hunting the internet for episodes of it, um, watching it through non-mainstream sources. I am getting close to the point in uh, season number three where I will be able to start to pick it up through, I think, uh, Hulu or Sci-Fi has to last five episodes um, streaming online. So I am catching up with season three so I can get into season four this fall when it starts in a couple of weeks. Uh, aside from that, um, I have n missed the last couple episodes of The Dome. The Dome is an amusing show. It is interesting, but it's not compelling. I think the big challenge with The Dome for me is they have not made compelling characters. They haven't made characters that I care about in any way. They haven't built them up. They haven't given me enough of their story to for me to care what happens to them week after week. I will probably watch some more episodes of The Dome and see if it picks up and, and connects me better with what's going on. But at this point, it is a show that had a lot of promise that just didn't live up to my expectations. So, on to my uh, Eureka Minute as part of the TV segment Um Eureka. So what's what's going on recently with the people of Eureka? Well, as part of Geek Week on YouTube, a sh new show called Gastro Geek was unveiled. The, pro the program pitted three web personalities against each other in a movie monster-themed food sculpture competition. One of the celebrity judges was Colin Ferguson from Eureka. Part of the judging responsibilities and the most compelling part of the program included the consumption of the sculptor's victims. They each need to make a, a victim in their little sculpture with their movie monster. The victims had to be composed of bananas and canned meat. To be honest, the show I found only moderately entertaining, um, although I do feel that way about most competition shows they are not that particularly compelling to me this show was 
fairly funny, um, had some some humorous moments, but just was not compelling. I'm not looking forward to another episode of it. But Colin Ferguson's performance on the show was enjoyable. You can watch it, and you can watch behind-the-scenes video from it as well on YouTube. It is called Gastro Geek. So a few stories from the world of Apple. Um, <clears throat> since I haven't recorded in a while, there are some things that hap have happened in the world of Apple that I haven't spoken about. One is Apple has released a new Airport Extreme, which does have space inside it for a hard drive. That is not a very compelling story. So moving on. Uh, during Apple's 2012 holiday quarter, the company sold more than 2 million Apple TV units, representing nearly 43% sales increase compared to 2011. Cumulative, cumulatively, Tim Cook revealed during this year's All Things D conference that Apple has, to date, sold over 13 million Apple TV units. Even more impressive is that Cook noted that about half of those sales took place in 2013. Suffice it to say, Apple TV may still only be a hobby in Apple's eyes, but sales of the device seem to be accelerating with each passing year. That said, it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise that the Apple TV in 2012 commanded a 56.1% share of the market with respect to dedicated streaming devices. The other big player in this market is the Roku player, in that particular uh, survey had 21.5% of the market. Additionally, Apple TV news. Apple has released some new software, a software update for Apple TV, bringing it to version 5.3 and including some new channels or new links. HBO Go and Watch ESPN are now available directly on the service, as well as Sky News, Crunchyroll and Quello to increase Apple's TV's live news, sports, and TV programming options. In addition to that, since that particular release, which was actually back in June, Apple has just gone live with Vivo, which is a video, like music videos, like if you're as old as I am, you remember when MTV actually played music videos. Vivo is a service similar to that, which shows music videos streaming online. It, most of those videos appear on YouTube, and they can be found on YouTube, and that is where I hear a lot of young people are listening to their music these days through Vivo on YouTube. So it's great to see Apple TV content expanding. I am very eager to get more and more content through my Apple TV. Um, when I relocated from Vermont down to New Jersey. I did not get television service. I just got internet service here. So any of the TV and movies and whatnot that I am watching these days are streamed over the internet. So it is, I've cut the cord. Uh, it is, it's been kind of a long time coming for me. I've been kind of eager to do so for a while. But finally, with this move, um, it made more sense for me to not have television service and cable TV and the costs associated with it. This is the worst radio ever. All right. Okay. Maybe it's the worst radio ever. So that's probably why there's no one listening to it, right? Well... For the, that person that might listen to this someday, here's the next story. There's a lawsuit that claims that bag searches at Apple stores cost workers $1,500 a year in unpaid overtime. This is from Business Insider and story written by Jim Edwards. Two Apple store employees are suing the company in a class action lawsuit 
that alleges they were subject to so many frequent bag searches for security reasons that they lost up to $1,500 in unpaid overtime every year. The employees claim that the policy, which requires Apple store workers to be searched when they leave the premises on lunch breaks or at the end of the day, costs them five to 10 minutes of waiting every day. Over a year, that adds up to as much as $1,500 in unpaid Apple time, given that the employees earned $18.75 per hour. Wow, $18.75 per hour, not bad for a retail job. That doesn't mean I think it's a good, good rate, although if the minimum wage was $18.75 an hour, I think that a lot more people would be hap uh, happier with their income. The bag searches are conducted to prevent employees from walking out the door with Apple's expensive merchandise. They're conducted off the clock, the pair claim, and thus represent unpaid forced overtime work. As the policy was company-wide and as Apple employs about 30,000 workers in its stores, the total potential liability could be in the ballpark of $45 million. So some of you, having heard this for the first time, whether hearing it now for the first time or heard it when the story broke, a month or so ago, um, might find this appalling. Why doesn't Apple trust its employees? Why would they have employees on staff that they would need to search every time they left the building? Um, but in the retail industry, which I am in, it is fairly common practice as an asset protection measure to look into any bags or parcels or handbags or purses that um, employees bring onto the premises. Incredibly, about 40% of theft in retail is internal theft. It is employees stealing from the company. And then another 40% of, of missing product, or what we call shrink, is from your shoplifters and organized retail groups coming into the store from the outside to steal from the company. And then about 20% of your shrink comes from errors, paperwork errors and whatnot. So... Internal theft is as big as external theft, so this is a very, very common practice to look in any package, any bag, backpack, purse that an employee is leaving the building with when they're working in a retail environment. So just a note on that point that that specific practice, while maybe un unknown to people outside the retail industry, um, is not particularly uncommon. Now, do these employees have a point? They may well have a point. If they're made to wait after they have clocked out, if they're made to wait for a, a task that is required part of the job, they should be paid for that time. If the time is, is many minutes, then I think they have a point. If the time is a minute, um, which I think is more common, then I think they may just be looking for some extra money. So it remains to be seen uh, whether this goes to full trial and, and a judgment comes down or whether this goes to some kind of settlement before a trial is over. So uh, let's see, one more thing from Apple. Um, it is today, September 1st, there is a rumored event not yet announced by Apple for September 10th, but widely, widely rumored and confirmed by many well-placed sources um, in the app rumor industry, including uh, Jim Dalrymple, who will respond occasionally to rumors with usually a one-word response, either yep or nope. Uh, I just heard a nope from Mr. Dalrymple being repeated on a podcast today because a recent story came out that said at the September 10th event, which is expected to focus on iPhones, uh, a recent story said they also will debut new iPads there as well, to which Mr. Dalrymple replied, nope. So don't expect your iPad updates this month probably sometime in October, we'll see some iPad updates. So the rumors that have been swirling around the iPhone 5 have come down to this. There are expected to be 
two iPhones, two iPhone 5 versions, one perhaps called the 5S to just kind of build on the previous naming conventions of Apple going from the 3G to the 3GS and the 4 to the 4S. Um, it is expected there will be a 5S model, which will be a lot faster. Perhaps add in some new functionality. There are still rumors about a fingerprint sensor because Apple bought a company that focused on fingerprint technology a couple years ago. Um, so it, we will see what Apple rolls out. Uh, it is widely expected that they will introduce at least one additional color, um, a gold iPhone. Uh, which certainly won't be appealing to all, but will be appealing to enough people they believe to warrant the addition. In addition to the 5S, there appears to be a lower-cost version of the iPhone with a plastic back that will come in multiple colors, uh, kind of the same way Apple split their iPod lineup a few years into that product's line. Um, it looks like they may be actually making a lower cost version. There are some really good reasons to do so. It will then, if they discontinue the older versions of the phone, then all of the current models will have the lightning connector and all of the current models will have the same size screen, which will benefit Apple in production of the phones that they are selling. So we should see what comes out on uh, September the 10th, and I will definitely be watching closely. At this point in time, I don't think this is gonna be a compelling enough change for me to upgrade from my iPhone 5 to the 5S. But we shall see what actually rolls out to find out whether I get hooked or not. One of the biggest yeah. deals ever in the history of ever. So we'll see if the Apple announcement is one of the biggest deals ever in the history of ever. But on to Twitter. So that there speaking about the biggest deals ever was uh, Mr. Scott Johnson. And I'm a big fan of him and his podcasts. As you have heard, if you listen to any of my earlier episodes, if you're a fan of podcasts and you listen to Scott Johnson, and shows that he produces from the Frog Pants Network, then you should follow the Twitter account at Scott Proclaims. Scott Proclaims pulls humorous quotes from podcasts like The Morning Stream and Film Sack and presents them without commentary and then also indicates which show and episode they are from. So it is fun to follow Scott Proclaims um, and reread these quotes that come from Scott Johnson and other um, participants in the Frog Pants Network podcast programs. Here's a couple of recent gems from the Scott Proclaims Twitter feed. Quote, there's going to come a day in my lifetime when I trip over Betty White's foot and break her ankle and get thrown in jail. Unquote. And, quote, I'm standing naked in a motorhome on a table, unquote. So it is an entertaining feed and enjoyable to read. So definitely go and check it out. You can check that out on twitter.com slash scottproclaims or go to scottproclaims.com. Yeah. I think you just nailed it. I think I did just nail it. So on to crowdsourcing. So what did I come across on crowdsourcing and crowdfunding for this week? There's an interesting campaign, and I found this out from a story on Laughing Squid by Rusty Blazenhoff. Fantastic name, Rusty Blazenhoff. Uh, so here is what Rusty Blazenhoff writes about this particular 
Indiegogo campaign. With the Male Cancer Awareness Campaign, actor and comedian Chris O'Dowd from the IT crowd has started a project called Skyballs in which they'll build a hot air balloon shaped like giant testicles. They aim to fly the giant scrotum for a year around the UK to bring awareness to testicular cancer. The campaign states, quote, a massive flying ball sack will be impossible to ignore and hopefully chip away at the taboos still surrounding this nasty little cancer. They recently launched an Indiegogo campaign to fund the project. So if that project sounds interesting to you and you want to give them some support, they definitely could use some support. They are looking to raise a hundred thousand pounds for this particular effort and currently are still under eight thousand pounds with 20 days left. So still some time but not a lot for them to get this uh, particular effort off the ground. No pun intended. Also on the web I found a uh, brilliant rendition or brilliant song by Amanda Palmer. I spoke of Amanda Palmer previously on one of my episodes when she was getting some heat and some feedback from her poem that she wrote about and or to one of the Boston Marathon Balmers. So Amanda Palmer this time is responding to the Daily Mail and this particular video that I saw is called Dear Daily Mail. Sincerely, Amanda Palmer. So you should go and check this out on YouTube. At the Roundhouse in London, Amanda Palmer sang her review of the Daily Mail's review of her appearance at Glastonbury. The song that she wrote and sang includes the lines, I was doing a number of things on that stage up to and including singing songs, like you do, but you chose to ignore them the instant you published a feature review of my boob. If you googled my tits in advance, you'd have found that your photos were hardly exclusive. Your focus on debasing women's appearance devolves our species of humans. After noting that the Daily Mail described her breasts' exposure at Glastonbury as an escape, Palmer sings, It appears that my entire body is trying to escape this kimono, at which time Amanda Palmer takes off her kimono. And then, standing naked behind her keyboard, Palmer continues to skewer the media's representation of women. It's a brilliant performance, and you should check it out. Her final line of this particular song ends, Dear Daily Mail, up yours. So you can see that performance on YouTube. It is called the Dear Daily Mail. Sincerely, Amanda Palmer. And you should definitely go and check it out. And another thing I came across on the web is one uh i think i think a fast food uh place that has back, get, gotten quite a lot of buzz in the last four or five years is chipotle um and chipotle has is the first u.s fast food chain to identify products with gmo ingredients this story was from consumers by mary beth quirk Sure, you probably know the basic ingredients in your fast food lunch. Chicken or beef, lettuce and tomato, what have you. After all, you're the one who ordered it. But if you, like many consumers, care whether or not those ingredients include genetically modified organisms, the ingredient list is usually no help. Chipotle announced that it will now mark those ingredients on its website for discerning consumers. Natural News says that with this new effort, Chipotle is the first U.S. fast food chain to label GMOs in its food, even if it's only on their website and not on menus in its stores. 
The pink G stands for GMOs on each of its ingredients along with other keys for local food or responsibly raised meats. While there's still a lot of debate, debate over whether or not it is unhealthy to grow and consume GMOs, environmental and consumer advocates have been pushing for a change in how such information is presented to consumers. Our goal is to eliminate GMOs from Chipotle's ingredients, and we're working hard to meet this challenge, the company explains. For example, we recently switched our fryers from soybean oil to sunflower oil. Soybean oil is almost always made from genetically modified soybeans, while there is no commercially available GMO sunflower oil. Where our food contains currently unavoidable GM ingredients, it is only in the form of corn or soy. And corn is a big ingredient at Chipotle. There are tortillas that are corn-based, and there are corn chips. Um, so corn is, is a big, big food stuff in the uh, American diet. And GMO is widely abundant in the supply of corn. Um, I think it is, in many ways, especially in processed foods, hard to ensure that if corn is an ingredient, that it is not GMO or that there's no GMO component in that ingredient. I don't think that it's definitive that GMOs are harmful, but I do think that we should be allowed to make the choice as consumers of what we want to eat and what we want not to eat. And I think that companies should be allowed to uh, identify which foods or which products they have contain GMOs or don't contain GMOs. Yeah, we got to get some of that. That people watch it and then it's a thing. People watch it and then it's a thing. What the hell is wrong with us? Speaking of hell, Desmond Tutu would prefer hell over a homophobic heaven. This is my favorite story of the last couple months. Um, one that just struck me as kind of a profound, important, compelling. Um, Desmond Tutu denounced religions that discriminate against LGTB identified people by making some very strong statements during the United Nations launch of its gay rights program in Cape Town, reports the AFP. He leaves no doubt about his opinions regarding LGTB rights, declaring, quote, I would not worship a God who is homophobic, and that is how deeply I feel about this. He added, I would refuse to go to a homophobic heaven. No, I would say, sorry. I mean, I would much rather go to the other place. South Africa's iconic archbishop is clearly still fighting for equality, despite his retirement, as he went on to relate the gay rights issue to his country's tumultuous history, saying, quote, I am as passionate about this campaign as I ever was about apartheid. For me, it is at the same level. And that is very powerful, powerful comments coming from the Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa. The second highly religious person to surprise me uh, next to the Pope, who actually made some similar but not nearly as strong overtures to uh gay and lesbian community um, in recent comments that he made. So great to hear people with power that are in institutions that have historically been uh, very antagonistic towards gay and lesbians to come out against those stalwart positions from their organizations. So, best story of the last couple months. 
and that will wrap it up for the real episode number 10 of Unrelated Things. I'm glad to get back in front of the microphone again. I hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back and listen to more. If you have any feedback or suggestions, you can let me know at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. And you can find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net or follow Unrelated Things on Twitter. Thanks for listening. It's Unrelated Things.